Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me on the other end. Darcy, how's it going with your long, flowing locks out tonight? I just got my hair (laughs) done today. It's quite gorgeous. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I'm doing okay. Um, Been kind of a long week, uh, so looking forward to getting some rest, but otherwise doing pretty okay. Oh yeah, join the club. Right. For those of you who don't know... (laughs) person <laughs> us personally we never wear our hair down <laughs> i no, never not wear ever. Hair down. <laughs> literally the only reason it's down is because i just had it like i had a blowout done nice. and i need to keep it down for another day and that's it okay awesome yeah. that looks gorgeous thank you um all righty so i didn't do it <laughs> <laughs> let's jump into some stuff today we got some exciting information for the listeners yeah. today um so we got a response back we did an episode i don't know if it was last week or the week before where we talked about the sperm the yeah the woman who was working in a morgue how she got pregnant yes. with the, the baby <sighs> this is interesting so this a woman named Alicia, or Alicia, it's probably Alicia, wrote us an email and she said, Hey ladies, IVF fertility nurse here. While post-mortem sperm collection can happen, it's done via testicular extraction. Mm. It usually uses similar equipment to a blood draw, a needle, and a syringe. The same procedure used in living men with a very low or no sperm count in their semen. Sometimes enough sperm can be retrieved directly from the testicles to proceed with IVF, even if few or none are present in ejaculated semen. So I think she's assuming that this woman could have gotten pregnant from extracting the sperm and not from actually having sex with the body. Right. Yeah. Um, This is also an an alternative to vasectomy reversal and post-humorous reproduction. There's no need to be minimally invasive so they can actually remove the testicle, but the concept is the same. Yikes. Um, Post-mortem collection is controversial, even in normal situations. Think a young couple who has been trying for a baby and the male partner is in an accident unexpectedly. It's pretty rare, and it's usually done in cases where the male in question is being uh, maintained on life support, and the family has been advised there's a very low chance of meaningful improvement. The American Society of Reproductive Medicine published an ethics committee opinion on the subject in 2018, which she's attached in case interested. We'll post that in the show notes. But the story about the morgue worker has been flagged by Snopes as false. Oh, okay. Which surprised me because it does look legit in the linked article. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's quite a few articles about this. Um, And again, my significant other heard about it on TikTok not as an article. And then I researched and looked it up on the other end. But hypothetically, though, the possibility of this happening exists, I suppose, in theory at least. Rigor mortis develops about 36 hours after death. As it sets in, the muscle contractions can cause semen to be released. Sperm generally start to die after about one hour at room temperature outside the body. Okay. The number of viable sperm cells remains statistically at the same number for about six hours and then starts to show statistically significant de- decreases thereafter. A few viable sperm have been observed in raw semen samples up to two weeks. Whoa. Current clinical guidelines suggest collection about 36 hours of death after death, I think is what she meant to say, is most likely to reproduce a viable sample. So I guess in scenario where the body is in the morgue before the onset of or brought in shortly after rigor mortis, and that particular uh, person has indeed produced ejaculatory fluid as a result of rigor mortis, sexual contact with the corpse could result in a pregnancy, assuming it hadn't dried. Mm. 
Um, if the medical examiner in question was determined to get pregnant with a dead man's sperm, they'd be, they'd be better served by surgically collecting and freezing a sample. But my understanding is that freezing techniques used to maintain um, viability aren't the same as preservation techniques used in the morgue, so she'd need access to a yeah. lab to process the sample post-collection. They do use electrical stimulation if, of the prostate to facilitate sperm collection when doing IVF in animals. Yikes. And it might work in a deceased individual, but no one uses it in people as far as I know. It involves inserting an electrical probe into the anus and producing an electrical current, which induces ejaculation. Yeah. Ooh. And the majority of people with the clinical capacity to do it would consider that over the line by a wide margin in a deceased human. But the woman who supposedly did this, I don't think she was necessarily well, walking a straight line if she was no. doing something like that. Yeah. Um, and then I suppose a deranged medical examiner might not have that same ethical boundary, though. So she speaks to that point. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's my analysis. If it's helpful, I hope you hear from some medical examiners, though. They're fascinating people, generally, yes. she says. That would be so cool. While double-checking my facts, I did find a urologist in California who has a team dedicated to post-mortem, post-mortem sperm retrieval. Many clinicians in the hospital, even IVF clinics, wouldn't be knowledgeable about this procedure and the legalities involved would often cause them to refuse most situations yeah even in a situation meeting the ethical guidelines out of fear of liability if you're so inclined it might be a good resource to share for anyone listening who might be in the future find themselves in a situation where they're making that devastating decision and she put a link to uh, an a, a opportunity for post-mortem sperm retrieval extraction Whew. Wow. all the best alicia or thank alicia. you alicia She's a registered nurse, but wow, that's a that's lot amazing. of information and yeah. incredibly insightful, intelligent response back. Like I'm seriously blown away. Thank you so much for providing us with this information. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. It so, really is. Yeah. And that, that kind of brought up a couple of things because like the way that that article was written, which we now know is not true, but it made it sound like that was a philia, right? Like a neck, she's a necrophiliac. Yes. Um, well, there so was there some were, conversation as to half the people thought it was a necrophiliac and the other just thought she had some serious mental health issues. Right. But either way it was, there was some sort of sexual pleasure drawn from some kind of the, postmortem. The idea of sexual contact with a with a dead body. Yeah. Um, in totally some ways. So the actual like surgical, re- like medical procedure that, that Alicia was talking about um, probably was not, you know, the ca- like wouldn't have been the case or whatever. Because you wouldn't, that would be like a medical procedure. That wouldn't be like something I'm that you would sure get sexual pleasure from. There have been plenty of people in the history of history in more, uh, morgue working and whatnot that have had sexual relations with corpses. I'm sure it happens more frequently than we'd like to believe, which is the truly horrific part of this. I don't know. Um, I don't know how many people like get into that kind of work for that reason. Like I wouldn't think I don't think that there are hundreds of them, but I think it probably happens more than we would think it does. Because I'd like to think it happens 0% of the time. Yeah. But there are people that are into that. So yeah. Anyway, we'll keep you posted if we hear any yeah. more articles about a similar type very, of situation. Very but good information, though. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you have an article that you wanted article. to talk about that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Too. So I think one of the things that, like, kind of comes up a lot in true crime is when we talk about serial killers, we talk about them, you know, from the 70s, 80s, 90s. And we always kind of have the question of, like, if there was a serial killer modern day, would we know about it? Because we have social media, we have 24-hour news, we have all these opportunities to get information. And so this article came out, and I thought this was really interesting because there has been a 25-year-old suspected serial killer arrested in Kansas City. He is 
being charged with two of six murders he's allegedly connected to in St. Louis and Kansas City. 25 is young, too, for us. 25 is very young. serial killers. And, like, yeah, and that's typically, like, around the time they start killing, Um, like, when you look at the research about serial killers and all this stuff. So um, there were victims of – there were six victims. Um, The majority were mostly women involved in sex work. And there have been also people who have been part of the transgender community. And this is alleged at this about, point because it's not. Well, he, yeah, because he's not he's not been convicted. Okay. He's just been charged. Okay. So the thing, the thing, the way he got caught was police tied his cell phone, picked up at a crime scene to a ticket that he purchased on an Amtrak. And they picked him up as he, as he got off a bus. Hmm. But the interesting thing is because, you know, Kansas City is also. Is in Kansas and Missouri. So because he committed crimes in both states, he's federal. also being charged with a federal mm-hmm. crime of taking a weapon across state borders. Interesting. And he used the same gun and he wore the same shoes to every crime scene. And so that's how they have linked him. An idiot. <laughs> I'm sorry. Aren't, aren't serial yeah. killers supposed to be smart? The first murder victim was a 16-year-old girl who was killed on September 13th, a few days after she was reported as a runaway. And this is another thing we've talked about where kids will go missing and the police the first thing they say is oh she just ran away or they just ran away so the first girl was 16 years old um, and then there were let's see there were killings in kansas city they took place in in high-rise apartment complex in two separate units in a high-rise like i said he wore the same shoes to both murders Mm -hmm. and then um they found his phone number had been used in both locations, and they were able to trace the number to an Amtrak ticket that he purchased to return home from St. Louis to Kansas City. Police followed him when he got off the train and onto a bus in Independence, Missouri, where he was arrested. So he was wearing. This doesn't sound very smart. No, well, he was wearing the shoes that was he wore to the to the crime scenes, and he had the gun that he used on him, the gun this he allegedly suspicious. used. Like, is somebody setting this guy up? I think he's just not very smart because the first victim was just in September so he was going pretty fast I don't know what obviously his motive was it seems like he was targeting members of the sex working um, community and separately transgender community Um, there's also a non-fatal shooting victim who is a man that fit neither category that was neither transgender nor was involved in sex work and they believe he was struck at random while waiting at a police stop so they don't or at a bus stop so they don't the police have said they don't know why the victims were chosen. They don't know if any of them knew each other or the suspect. His name is Perez Reed. So hmm. his picture, it's a pretty wild photo. So I'll send you the link and we can post it too. Cause, I saw the picture yeah. of him and I, I read the article and I was just like, what the? Yeah. It just sounds kind of suspect to me. Like there's certain parts of this that just don't sound right. Well, and the reason I kind of want to talk about this is because one of the victims was a um, they, well, it's actually, they, they've not identified, the police found a deceased person in the high-rise apartment complex, but they say they later attributed that death to natural causes, and I think that that's one of those things where, this is again a marginalized community, the sex work community, separately in the transgender community, um, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm certainly not linking those communities, but this, these are both marginalized populations that I think are, that, that we talk about all the time that are being overlooked, when it comes to serial murder and violence. Well, if you throw yeah. in them being in a minority on top of it, like then you end up with like, mm-hmm. they're virtually invisible to law enforcement exactly. in so many instances, instances. Sorry. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting because, you know, normally when we talk about serial killers, they have like weeks or months in between 
um, murders, and this this guy seems to have been just going pretty quickly. But then at the same time, he was able to commit six murders before police called him. And yeah, you know that's crazy. Yeah, so yikes. Yep. Well, I'm glad they did catch him. Me too. But it should be interesting to see how this unwinds and plays out in the court system once they start to uncover the the mm-hmm. case facts and maybe interview this guy and see how much he confesses and is he speaking at all is he i've not seen any updates any on it yeah I don't interesting know. whether he's just completely staying quiet or whether he's kind of a media um type of a guy like ted bunny who yeah. wanted to share every little aspect of it and become famous right. or whether he's just incognito and doesn't want anyone to know who he is yeah so should be interesting um only for us morbid people mm-hmm. right normal people are like what why would you want to know that <laughs> right um okay main case for the day i am going to talk about dun 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 the toolbox killers oh boy do you know about these guys i do i heard about this case um but then there was a, a recent article that just came out where they were talking to the fbi agents that were working on this case and people that had identified these guys mm-hmm. in prison to try to find, because I, I, it's my understanding that there are bodies out there that are attributed to these two that have not been located mm-hmm. yet. Um, and so there have been efforts um, in since these two were captured to try to locate the bodies. Yeah. Um, and then I read uh, some recent articles about it, which kind of linked it to this. I'd heard vaguely of these guys, but I never really paid that close attention because I always kind of, in my mind, was not paying that close attention so i kind of linked it with the toy box killers Mm -hmm. so the toolbox and the toy box to me became one and i didn't realize until recently that it was two separate cases but lawrence bitteker Mm -hmm. was born in pittsburgh pittsburgh pennsylvania september 27 1940 so his parents didn't want to have children which this sounds kind of like a very familiar story um, for many men that end up being killers or women as well. But he was put into an orphanage um, and adopted by a couple by the name of, oh, well, it says Mr. and Mrs. George Bitteker. Okay. So it doesn't say what the mother's name is, but that's how they used to do it back in the day. I guess the woman didn't matter as much. (laughs) Anyway, and his adoptive father worked in the aviation industry. And as a result, the family traveled frequently around the U.S. as Lawrence was a young child. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a criminal history from a pretty young age. He was arrested for shoplifting at 12. He had a pretty minor criminal record after that over the next couple of years and some further arrests for things like petty theft. Um, and this kind of brought him into the safekeeping, so to speak, of the juvenile system. If right? you can call it that. Yeah. Well, back then, oh, it was horrific. Yeah. I'm sure that it probably still is, but I think it wasn't really so much. It wasn't so much about rehabilitation. It was more about just throwing these people away and yeah. throwing them, locking them up and throwing them away the key. In any case, he basically said that his thefts and different things that he was doing was just to get attention and to compensate for the lack of love that he was getting from his parents, which and I don't think that's is incredibly sad. Yeah, and I don't think that's terribly unusual. In no. a neglected home. I just, I, I don't know from if that's been ver- verified from, like, an objective party that he was no. a, grew up in an objective home. Yeah. That's what he says. I just want to make it clear. There's nobody that has necessarily mm-hmm. proven this or not. It's what he is saying. But, and again, I, I suspect it a little bit, take it with a grain of salt, because this guy yep. had an, a very yes. high IQ. 
of 138, yeah. it was said. Um, so, Which is more than two standard deviations above the average IQ. Sometimes people with incredible intelligence will determine what they think is going to get them the most sympathy and make up a story. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I can't say for sure. But um, he was smart, but he pretty much thought school was tedious and yeah. dropped out in 1957. Which also happens when you have incredibly intelligent people because they're not challenged enough. I'm sure there are a lot of incredibly intelligent people that were in the educational system and experienced similar mm-hmm. types of things. But in any case, he by the time he was like a teen, his adoptive parents had moved to California. And within a year of dropping out of high school, he got arrested for car theft, hit and run, and evading arrest. And he was put into the California Youth Authority system where he stayed until he was about 18. Yikes. So he's basically on this path where nothing good can come of it. It's not like he's going to be rehabilitated, taken care of, offered psychological treatment, especially back then. Right. Yeah, he's not getting one-on-one attention from a professional. No. Um, And so he's in there till he's 18. Then he gets released and goes to look for his adoptive parents. They've disowned him by then and moved to another state, which... What the heck, right? His adoptive yes. parents? Yes. Wow. So he's been put into the adoption system, and then his adoptive parents are like, no way, we're done with you. You're too much trouble. Bye. Yeah. Um, and he never saw them again. Hmm. So that puts Mr. Lawrence Bittaker into his teenage years or adulthood years at that point. Yeah. And then there's Roy Norris. Roy Lewis Norris was born in Colorado in Greeley. February 5th, 1948. So this is a really interesting time period too, because there was definitely a perception about unwanted children and parents that get pregnant out of wedlock and and so forth. And I think these two experienced quite a dramatic end result because Mm -hmm. of it. But this young man was conceived out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. So his parents weren't married and in order to kind of avoid what they knew was coming, because if you were um, a a young woman back then and you conceived a child and you weren't married, then there was a huge, huge stigma created against you. You were quote unquote ruined. You were trash, basically, and that you weren't ever going to achieve anything in life because of that. His parents married very young in order to avoid Mm -hmm. that stigma. And then his extended family lived pretty close. So he spent some time with his grandparents. His father worked in a scrapyard and his mother was basically a housewife who had this drug addiction, Mm. which uh, I wonder what drug she was addicted to back then in the fifties. It probably was very different from like barbiturates or something. Probably. Um, So he lived with his parents off and on. And then got placed into foster families throughout the state of Colorado through most of his mm-hmm. childhood, which is an incredibly mm-hmm. difficult experience as well. Not only are you getting bounced around, but I think the criteria for choosing foster parents back then was not as tight as it is now. I'm not saying it's great now, but I think there were a lot yeah, of say, yeah. instances where children suffered tremendous abuse in the hands of foster parents yeah. because it wasn't regulated as closely as it is now. And there's differences between, like, a private foster care system and, a, and the public foster care system, like the state foster care system. Yeah. Um, and this, we're very much talking about the state foster care system right now. Yeah. Um, in any case, he says that he suffered a lot of abuse and neglect. He was frequently denied food and clothing that was sufficient to care mm-hmm. for someone. Um, he also claimed he'd been sexually abused. 
Um, and the sexual abuse was at the hands of a Hispanic family. And he said that mm. later on, this created this prejudice within him against Hispanic people. Okay. Um, which, who knows if that's even true either. Like, there's no way to prove that either. Mm-hmm. Then, about 16, he visited a female relative at her home and I guess was speaking to her in a very sexually suggestive way. And she told him to leave and also informed his father, his biological father, who threatened to beat him. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this whole element as well. And he steals his father's car and drives to the Rocky Mountains to get away because he knows he's going to get beaten for this sexually suggestive conversation he's had. And he says that at the time he was going to commit suicide, mm-hmm. he was going to do this by injecting air into an artery in his arm, which, Ooh. is that a thing? Ooh, yes. That's how a lot of, like, if you hear about, like, angels of death, that, like, like medical professionals that are killing people, that's a pretty common way to do it because it's really hard to trace. Yeah, but how do you do that? So you just get a syringe and... like. Yeah, so, like, you've seen, like, when people fill up the syringe, then, like, they squirt a little yeah. to make sure a little bit comes out the top. That's to make sure there's no so air bubbles. So if they do that and they they put that directly into their vein, then they can kill themselves? How do you, how do you die? Yeah. You suff- what, what happens? Because it's, an, like, it's an air bubble in your bloodstream. Yeah, but what, what does that do? It stops your heart? Like, what? Because I know it can kill you. Air bubbles. Like, I've just never heard of anyone attempting to commit suicide in that manner. Um, I've not heard of necessarily. It seems weird. Um, is it incredibly painful? Does it take a long time? Like I just so it's an embolism. Okay, an air embolism, also called a gas embolism, occurs when one or more air bubbles enter a vein or artery and block it. When an air bubble enters a vein, it's venous air embolism. When an air bubble enters an artery, arterial air air embolism. These bubbles can travel to your brain, heart, or lungs and cause a heart attack, stroke, or respiratory okay. failure. Okay. Um, I do know it. It's very dangerous and it can kill you, um, but I wasn't exactly sure of the mechanism of it. But, that's but I've how it literally, yeah. have you ever heard of anyone trying to commit suicide that way? It seems strange. I mean, uh, I've heard of people killing, like the angel of death scenario in a hospital, yeah. but never somebody trying to kill themselves I don't that way. feel like I've heard of somebody trying to die by suicide like that, but I mean, at the same time, I don't know. I mean, obviously it would be, it would, it's a method. I mean. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and then he got picked up as a runaway because obviously he didn't do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they return him to his parents. And as soon as he gets home, his parents are like, hey, you and your younger sister, we don't want you. And we're, oh. we're going to get a divorce, and we hate you guys, basically. So God. he's feeling unwanted and unloved and depressed, and he drops out of school as well and joins the Navy. Mm-hmm. He was actually, there's a San Diego link to this. He was actually stationed oh. in San Diego yeah. in 1965. And they actually sent him to Vietnam in 69. Mm-hmm. He didn't see any active combat, though, during his four-month tour of duty and was honorably discharged after one tour. Bittiger gets paroled from the California Youth Authority and is immediately arrested for transporting stolen vehicles across state lines. Bittiger was sentenced to 18 months in prison in August 59. Mm-hmm. And he went to the Oklahoma State Reformatory to serve his time and then got transferred to the medical center for federal prisoners in Springfield, Missouri to serve the remainder of his sentence. I don't know why he was transferred to the medical center. Um, I know that's where Whitey Bulger died. That's about it. Yikes. By 1960, he was released from prison and then just immediately jumps back into a life of crime, which Mm -hmm. I guess not surprising since it's all he'd pretty much done his whole life. That's kind of like Manson where he 
just has spent so much time institutionalized that it's like that's more comfortable than being out in the real world. I guess so. Like it kind but, of sounds like that. <laughs> he gets released in 1960 and then immediately gets arrested in Los Angeles in 1961. Then he gets 15 years imprisonment for that one, hmm. for robbery. While he's in jail serving time for this robbery, he's diagnosed by a psychiatrist. They say he's highly manipulative. Yeah. And they said he had, quote, having considerable concealed hostility. So I don't know how formal the diagnosis yeah. <laughs> process was back I'm then. I'm not sure you find that in the DSM. Yeah. So in any case, he's released on parole in 1963. After doing about two years of his sentence. How does he get released on parole? He's got a 15-year sentence, and they say he's highly manipulative and hostile. And they're like, yeah, you did a couple years, so. Go for it. You're good. Yeah. You get good time for this. Honestly. Then he gets arrested again for parole violation in October 1964. Okay. So he's in and out, in and out, in and out, Mm -hmm. in and out. 1966, he goes under further examinations by two independent psychiatrists. So they're like, this guy, he keeps Mm -hmm. coming in and out. What are we going to do? Let's check him out with psychiatry. And they all classified him as a borderline psychopath. Yeah, borderline. Yeah. Highly manipulative, unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions, which sounds Mm -hmm. like most criminals or most, like, killers, right? Most serial killers particularly, right? (laughs) Um, he explains to one of the psychiatrists that his criminal activities gave him a feeling of self-importance. Yikes. But also, like, points to his um, environment growing up and says that it brought about decreased ability to resist committing crimes. So he's blaming his environment right. and his childhood for all of his problems, which, not surprising. Yeah. Not, rece- not accepting any responsibility for his own actions. They give him some antipsychotic medication mm-hmm. and then release him again a year later. Unbelievable. Like, Have fun. Here's yeah. a little medication. Bye. Make sure, now make sure you stay on this. Don't you just go skipping a dose. Keep taking it. Yeah. Um, a month after his parole, he gets arrested. And <laughs> this is July 1967. They convict him of theft and of leaving the scene of an accident. So they give him five years for that one, and he's released again in April 1970. Which, by the way, he should already—he should still be in prison for his original 15-year term. Seriously. Then he gets arrested again in March of 1971 for burglary. And then they finally decide at that point, hey, you've got too many parole violations. You're, your sentence was to serve between six months and 15 years in October 71, but they release him three years later. Yeah. So they gave him six months to 15 years in October 1971 and released him in three years, which were the prisons just super crowded back then? Like, I, I just know. don't I mean, understand. I can't imagine they were more crowded than they are now. Why did they not just throw the book at this guy? Is it just because his crimes weren't serious enough? Like, I, I'm really kind of unclear on that. I don't know. Then he gets arrested again in 1974 for assault and c- attempt to commit murder. Get this. He stabbed a supermarket kid who had accused him of stealing. So this poor kid is working at a supermarket mm-hmm. and is like, sees this guy stealing. He saw Bitteker stealing a steak and was like, hey, did you forget to pay? He didn't even accuse him. He was like, hey, sir, right. I think you may have forgotten to pay. Like he wasn't like being accusatory. It sounds like he was just like, mm-hmm. hey, there's a mistake. It's an honest mistake. Let's remedy this. And he turns around and um, stabs him. Narrow- and they tell retail workers now like if you see somebody stealing like don't go no, after them because there's too much liability like, you're now. not getting paid yeah. enough to like i wouldn't 
to do no all thanks. that. Yeah. Um, he narrowly missed this guy's heart. And mm. then attempts to take off, but two supermarket employees grab him. Thank goodness. So this poor guy that got stabbed, his name was Gary Louie. He survives. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bideker doesn't get charged with murder, but he does still get that charge of assault with a deadly weapon. And they send him to the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. Yeah. So he's like, bye. I'm That's only like- going to be in here for a few months. See you in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So then Norris, this gem of a guy, um, is arrested in November of 1969. And this was his first known sexual offense. Okay. He gets charged with both rape and assault and with attempt to commit rape. I guess he had tried to force his way into this woman's car. He sees her on the road and tries to force his way into the car. And that's when all hell breaks loose. Luckily, mm-hmm. she got away. Um, and then he goes to jail for those offenses. He also attempted to deceive another woman into letting him come into her home. So he's like, knock, knock. Can I use your toilet or can I use mm-hmm. your phone? And she's like, mm, no, you look creepy. Yeah, and good for her. when she says no and shuts the door, he tries to break into the house. Mm-hmm. Luckily, she's able to telephone the police and they arrest him before he could get into the house and cause her any harm. Thank but God. it's obvious that he had the intent to do some serious yeah. bad stuff, right? But less than three months after this time, he's diagnosed with by military psychologist as a severe schizoid personality, which mm. that's not an official diagnosis anymore, right? Schizoid Even if it, it wasn't is, an official diagnosis. Uh, it it used to be for sure. It's like the step bef- it's like if you look at schizophrenia on a spectrum, schizoid is like the step right before schizophrenia. So it's like you have schizotypal characteristics but not enough to be like labeled schizophrenia so what what are some of those the characteristics of that probably um i well i don't i'm just guessing based on this characteristics of schizophrenia um probably auditory hallucinations disordered um, thinking disordered thinking um inappropriate affect maybe like laughing at inappropriate moments not understanding the severity of some um, situations, uh, interesting, not really understanding the consequences of his actions, that kind of thing. Yeah. In any case though, the Navy discharges him, um, under the term psychological problems. Hmm. So evidently he was in the military while all this went down. Um, and then he gets bail for attacking a female student in May, 1970. He would act, he was stalking her at San Diego state university. Hmm. So again, that San Diego connection, Mm -hmm. Um, and he repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock. Jesus Christ. Before she, like, falls down, and then he attempts to beat her head against the sidewalk as he's kneeling on her lower back. Jesus. So, mm, not such a great guy. Yeah. He gets charged with assault with a deadly weapon and is committed to five years imprisonment shortly after that. He goes to a Tascadero State Hospital, which I believe is where, um, what's his name, Ed... Kemper? The big guy. Yes, where Edward Kemper was, right? Uh, I think he oh, was the there. After yeah, the first time. Grandpa- where he learned how to yeah. administer the tests and be super clever. Yeah. Um, but he got classified as a mentally disordered sex offender while he was mm-hmm. at Atascadero. He gets released in 1975 with five years probation. And the doctors say, mm, you're good. You're no longer a danger to others. I mean. Which... Why? How? Like, they, that was can the they really they rehabilitate didn't understand that? That, that wasn't <laughs> that like sexual deviancy, criminal sexual deviancy, violent sexual deviancy wasn't 
um, curable. Like they, they didn't understand that. Yeah. Well, they thought they cured him. He's yeah. good. See you later. Then it only takes him about three months before he goes after a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach. Mm. He's like, hey, you want to ride on my sweet motorcycle? She's all, um, I don't think so. You're super creepy. Yeah. He parks his motorcycle and grabs her by the scarf, Jesus. twisting it around her neck. And he's telling her, I'm going to rape you. And he drags her to some bushes pretty close by. And she's like super freaked out. Yeah. And she doesn't fight him because she feels like if she, if she does, he's going to kill her. He's just right. that angry and violent and like right. scary. Right. Um, she reports the rape. And initially they can't find him. Norris, that is. But then about a month later, she sees his motorcycle again and writes the license plate number down and gives it to the police. And they arrest him for rape. This is a year after the fact. He gets convicted and gets sent to the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo, which, hmm, coincidentally, Mr. Uh Lawrence Bittaker is also there serving his sentence. And now our stories start to merge. And this is how these two gentlemen get to be besties. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Bettiger and Norris, like, met each other in about 1977, about a year after Norris gets to San Luis Obispo, to the men's colony. So it took them a while before Mm -hmm. they connected when they were both in that space. Um, Bettiger, being the intelligent a-hole that he is, says that Norris is, quote, savvy individual who largely associated with hardened criminals from motorcycle gangs. Okay. In addition to dealing in contraband drugs. So he's like, hey, this guy's pretty savvy. Yeah. He hangs out with motorcycle gangs, so he's got to be smart. And he's dealing in contraband drugs. Yeah. Winner. And he can get stuff into the prison, yeah. Yes. So the pair, like, kind of circle around each other in this prison area, like, taking in all these wonderful characteristics of one another. And then they start talking to each other. And Norris teaches Bittiger how to construct jewelry. Yes. Which seems super weird. Is it just me? No, it is really weird. And I've seen a documentary about them, and they don't ever explain why jewelry. What kind of jewelry? Yeah. No, they don't really explain. Is this like a weird, like, 70s thing where it was, like, hip to make jewelry or something? I don't know. I don't know. I thought it was really weird that they bonded over making jewelry. Well, that's that's the activity they were doing. They were really sharing fantasies of violent sex acts. Yeah. Mm. And that's really how they bonded. So I think the point that they became these inseparable besties was when Bittiger saved Norris from being attacked on two occasions by fellow inmates, which, you know, they were trying to give him a little prison justice, right? Mm-hmm. And Bittiger jumps in and saves him. So it gets to be 1978, and these guys are getting closer than ever, and they discover, while they're making all this jewelry, that they're really mutually interested in sexual violence and misogyny. Mm-hmm. And Norris is saying, hey, my biggest stimulation is seeing frightened young women. Adding that the primary reason he had amassed a lengthy record for sexual offenses was for this reason. Hey, I'd like to see him freaked out. I like sexual encounters with them when they're totally freaked out. And I like the violence and I like the control and all that other creepy stuff. Um, Bittaker, though, was not known to have committed any sexual kind of offenses prior to meeting Mm -hmm. Norris. And he then tells Norris that... He, if he ever had the chance to rape a woman, he'd kill her so that she, he wouldn't leave any witnesses to the crime, yep. which sounds creepy as hell. Um, so then these two hang out together and 
make jewelry and talk about their plans to assault and murder teenage girls mm-hmm. as, soon as, as soon as they get the chance, right? Yep. Um, they had this really crazy, icky mutual fantasy involving these kind of elaborate plans to get a girl each year from ages 13 to 19 and murder them. Yep. And they make this vow to become, you know, besties outside of prison once they're both released. Because obviously mm-hmm. they're not going to get released at the same time. But they're like, right. hey, once we get out, let's meet back up and do yeah. this evil plan. So Lawrence Bittaker gets released um, in October of 1978. He immediately goes back to Los Angeles. Well, he goes to Los Angeles and finds work as a machinist. Which, interesting. I didn't know he had that skill. But... um. He makes pretty good money. Like yeah, they say close, make good money. close to $1,000 a week, which back then mm-hmm. was a significant amount of money. Yeah. And he's a loner, but he's friendly with some people in his neighborhood. He earns this reputation as being generous and helpful, and he donates money to the Salvation Army, just giving people this impression that he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he also is known on one occasion at least to get a whole bunch of fast food and wine and hand it out to homeless people in downtown L.A., Okay. So he's like, I'm a good guy. I mean, he is being a good guy. His actions are those of a good person. Well, clearly he's trying to build up this reputation for himself yeah. so he can blend in like the creepy, yeah. nasty serial killer that he's but, yeah, going again, to turn out he's to be. highly manipulative. And, yeah. Exactly. Um, so he's super popular with the local teens. and Which, don't be that guy. Don't ever be super popular with the local teens. He gives them beer and marijuana. Uh-uh. He's living Don't in this be the Bur- candy man. Yeah, he's living in this Burbank motel. And it's like a popular place for yeah. teenagers to socialize around there because they're he's giving them beer and marijuana, which of back then like any anybody that did that was like the Pied Piper, right? I mean, now. Yeah. Well, Norris gets released 3 months later in January of 1979, and he moves into his mother's house first in Redondo Beach, and then about a month after his release, he had raped a woman. And then simply abandon her in the desert. So he soon, he gets away with that. Mm-hmm. And then he finds employment as an electrician in Compton, which that's got to be a little rough. But again, both he and Bittaker are like skilled yeah. workers when they get out. So They're clearly manual, they yeah. have the ability to blend in. I, I feel like maybe they learned, did he maybe learn electric, electrician skills in prison? Probably. I, I mean, feel like Maybe in the Navy. Yeah. He maybe oh, did it in the Navy. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I haven't really read anywhere any specific details about these two and where they learned these skills. I mean, most of the articles that are out there are really focused on the killings themselves and what happened afterwards um, and the victims. So um, I don't really think it's important where he learned it. Uh, He's a jerk. Anyway, he gets a letter from Bittiger shortly thereafter, after he starts working as this electrician, and then these two meet up in a hotel and rekindle this plan to rape and kidnap girls. Like, how did he find Norris, like, to write him a letter? How did he find, figure out where to send it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he just, like, the phone maybe book Norris like, gave him his mom's address or something? It had to have been the yeah. case, because they vowed when they were in prison to communicate with each other afterwards. Mm-hmm. He had to have known that he was going to get released to his mother or something. Yeah. Anyway, these two creepos managed to reconnect, which yeah. is super sick. But they decide that if they're going to do this, they're going to need a van, which yep. here's the birth of the creepy van as the yep. serial killer um, vehicle. And so Norris helps him out, and they get this silver gray GMC Vandura, which there's a picture of it online Mm -hmm. but um it's a 1977 gmc vandura vandura 
such a cool name for a car. I would love to have a Vendor. No, I wouldn't. It's silver and it's super creepy. And the vehicle has no windows on one side and this large kind of passenger side sliding door, yeah. which we had a van similar to this when mm-hmm. I was growing up. It was blue, not silver, but it was very similar to this. And it was super creepy too. Yeah, but the sliding door is very important for them. It was like carpeted on the inside and there were no yeah. seats. There were just seats in the front. And it was just like this. My mom and her husband at the time used to take this down to Mexico and stay in the van. and. Okay. Just, it's a whole creepy like 70s yeah. 80s early 80s 70s vibe but um they got this van with the sliding door because they wanted to pull up next to teenage girls and not have to open the door all yep. the way which ew and they nicknamed it murder mac mm-hmm. from about february to june in 1979 these two creepaholics pick up about 20 different hitchhikers and I think kind of like um, old Ed Kemper did, they were kind of testing it out. Yep. So they didn't assault any of these girls. They didn't do anything bad to them. This was just kind of a practice run to see, like, what sorts of things they could say that would lure these girls into the van. Mm-hmm. And they also were kind of scouting out secluded spaces to do their damage in. Mm-hmm. And they find this isolated fire road um, in the San Gabriel Mountains. And they're like, this is the perfect spot to do our murdery stuff. Um, and Bitteker breaks open. There's a locked gate that's actually closing this space mm-hmm. off, and he breaks it and puts his own lock on it. In any case, they found this spot mm-hmm. that both of them really thought was great, isolated, whatever. So they pick up this first victim. Mm-hmm. Her name is Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. She was 16 at the time. They pick her up um, June 1979. So she was actually leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach, which just really... This poor, innocent little, she's 16, she's a good girl. She's not engaging in risky behavior. She's leaving a church meeting for crying Mm -hmm. out loud. Um, And they basically had just finished constructing the bed in the rear of the van. Beneath it, they placed tools, clothes, and a cooler filled with beer and soft drinks. So this is about 11 a.m. Yep. And they drive to the beach area. They're drinking beer, smoking weed, and flirting with girls. And they really were just chilling. They didn't have any specific routine. But that's what, how they started their day. Like, this is not going to get any better. But about 7.46 yeah. p.m., that's when they spot this poor little girl leaving this church meeting. And she's walking down a side street. And these two see her, and they're like, oh, there's a cute little blonde. Let's lure her into the murder van because we're creepy as hell. Um, and they attempt to get her to enter the van of her own accord. They're like, have some marijuana, have some beer, but she's a good girl. And she's like, no, I don't want your weed. I don't want, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm walking, leave me alone. So they drive a little bit yeah. ahead of her and they park the car and Norris jumps out, opens the passenger side sliding door, leans into the van with his head and shoulders kind of behind the view of the door. Right. And when this young girl passes him, um, mm-hmm. He exchanges a few words with her and then grabs her and drags her into the van and closes the door, which, disgusting. Um, and I guess this mm-hmm. is kind of a, a method that they yep. repeated during most of their murders thereafter. But Bitteker then turns the radio on full blast as Norris is, like, binding this poor girl and gagging her and putting duct tape over her mouth. They drive to this isolated road in the San Gabriel Mountains and... They had previously switched the locks, as I mentioned earlier. So this was like their spot now. And Mm -hmm. she screamed a ton when she was first taken, but she regains her composure and like 
tries to like keep it under control because she's like, I got to be smart. I got to try to get myself out of this. But um, mm -hmm. Bitteker writes about this later and says she displayed, she quote, displayed a magnificent state of self-control and a composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. Like, what the? Seriously. Um, Norris is the first one yeah. who rapes her and then instructs Lawrence to go take a walk um, while he's doing that and return Because it. that was his, very much his fantasy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it definitely was. Because as the earlier uh, portion that I stated, Bitteker doesn't really, wasn't into that stuff and didn't, really participate right. in any sexual crimes until he met Norris. But yeah. Norris is like, hey, go take a walk. I'm going to do this, return in about an hour, and then, you know, we'll take care of business then. But when he returns to the van, um, Bitteker then raped this young woman again. Well, Norris mm -hmm. took the walk this time. And, um, and then they switch again, and they, she basically asked them at that point if they intend to kill her. And Norris says, no, 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 we're not going to kill you. We just want to, you know, torture you a little bit, mm -hmm. which is super creepy. Um, yeah. And then they give kind of differing accounts, these two men, as to who would kill this young mm -hmm. woman um, instead of releasing her. And they each argue that they should kill her. And then she pleads for a second to pray so she's like, can you just give me a heads up when you're about to kill me so I can pray before you kill me? Which sounds horrific. Mm -hmm. um, and then Norris attempts to strangle her. And after about 45 seconds of this, he gets super creeped out by the look in her eyes and runs to the front of the van and vomits. Yeah, because that's... His thing is the sexual statism. Bitteker's thing is the violence. The torture and, and the, the violence, yeah. yeah. But Bitteker then strangles her until she yeah. collapses to the ground and begins convulsing. And he twists a wire hanger around her neck in kind of a garrote type of a situation mm -hmm. until she stops moving. Mm -hmm. So she was basically denied any request to pray before they killed her, which is just whatever, dudes. You're awful. You're going straight yeah. to hell. Um, then they wrap her body in a plastic shower curtain and throw her over this canyon in the place mm -hmm. that they kind of mutually selected. And after they do this, they say, oh, animals are going to eat her up, so there's not going to be any evidence left. Which, are you really that dumb? Yeah, I mean, yes, but also not to the extent that you think that's going to happen. Yeah. In any case, um, they pick up the next victim, July 8th, 1979. This is about two weeks after they had killed the Schaefer, the young woman previously, mm -hmm. right? Um, and they encounter this Andrea Joy Hall hitchhiking. She's on the Pacific Coast Highway, which I think was probably pretty common back then. Mm -hmm. Hitchhiking, that is. Yeah. She is hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway, and another vehicle that actually pulls up and offers her a ride before they mm -hmm. get a chance to. So she accepts this ride with this other vehicle, and they follow it until she exits in Redondo Beach. And then they hide in the back of the van and do that whole duping thing. Mm -hmm. um, and she, they get her into the van. They offer the, her a drink from the cooler, and she's like, oh, hey, sure, I'll have a beer. And Norris had been hiding under a bedspread in the back of the van, and he, like, jumps on her when mm -hmm. she, like, goes to get the drink they offered. And they pull her arm behind her back, and this makes her scream, and then they gag her with tape and bind her wrists and ankles. Then they go back to their special spot in the San Gabriel Mountains, where they had taken Schaefer earlier and they raped this young girl twice. And 
When Bideker was going back for a second time, Norris sees a headlights of a vehicle approaching and they get super freaked out and um, drive a little further up into the mountains because they're like, wait, somebody could be watching us. we got to make mm-hmm. sure we're hidden. They force this young woman to walk uphill naked alongside the road and then perform oral sex on them. Then they order her to pose for Polaroid pictures, which they want to keep their trophies, I guess. Yeah. Um, then they drive her to this third spot where they walk her up a hill again. And um, in the meantime, Dor- uh, Norris drives to a local store to get more alcohol while this whole thing is going down with Bitteker kind of torturing this young woman out in the middle of nowhere. And he's taking further Polaroid pictures of her while Norris is getting more booze. And they, I guess, showed this young woman's face in like sheer terror mm-hmm. as she's basically begging for her life. And they basically tell her they're going to kill her. And they ask her to give them as many reasons as they could come up with why they, sh- why this, why she should be allowed to live. And he then thrusts an ice pick through her ear into her brain. Yeah. Just horrific. Um, he turns her body over and puts it into her other ear, that ice pick. And stomps on it. And this it. is Bitteker that's doing it, right? Yeah. And he stomps yeah. on her until the ice pick handle breaks off. Jesus. Then he strangles her and throws her body off a cliff. So just awful, 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 horrific, yeah. sadistic, evil person. Then on September 3rd, Bitteker and Norris find these two young girls named Jackie Doris Gillum and Jacqueline Leah Lamp. These two are sitting at a bus stop in Hermosa Beach. And... They had actually been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway as well. Um, and then Bitteker and Norris saw them as they were resting at this bus stop in between rides, right? Mm-hmm. And they offer the girls a ride, and the two are like, oh, hey, you know, we're together. We're safe. So they say, yeah. sure. And then Norris and Bitteker offer the marijuana, and they accepted. And they're both in the van when they realize that Bitteker has steered the van off the Pacific Coast Highway and is driving towards the San Gabriel Mountains, which is not going to be good. And when they start to freak out, Bitteker and Norris attempt to basically say, hey, everything's going to be okay. We we aren't tricking you. We're just going a different way. But Lamp is only 13, which the other one, Gilliam, is 15. Mm -hmm. And they attempt to open the sliding door, and Norris hits one of the girls in the back of the head with a bag filled with lead weights. Jesus. Yeah. And this knocks her unconscious while they overpower Gilliam. And they're binding and gagging both of them, and as they're binding and gagging Gilliam, Lamp, the 13-year-old, regains consciousness and starts to try to get out of the van. And they drag her back in, and they're struggling... And they're noticing the doors open, and this is in full view of anyone who could be mm-hmm. potentially driving by and seeing it. And so they kind of bind and gag the two girls and, and like, viciously sort of assault them to get them to get in the van and be quiet. Well, they, then they drive them to the San Gabriel Mountains. They're held captive for almost two days. They're bound, gagged, and repeatedly raped and subjected to physical abuse. The men slept in the van alongside their two hostages, which alternately... Um, act as looked out as a lookout well one slept the other one would act as a lookout mm-hmm. and then Bitteker walks lamp into a nearby hill and forces her to pose for pornographic pictures before he returns to the van um, they take a bunch of pictures of both girls both nude and clothed and then they rape Gillum and he also created this tape recording of himself mm-hmm. raping her and forcing her to pretend she was his cousin which is just 
disgusting. And they basically inform this poor young woman, Gilliam, to feel free to express her pain. Jesus. They stab her breasts with an ice pick and use vice grip pliers to tear off parts of one of her breasts, which, ugh. Yeah. Then after about two days in captivity, both girls were murdered. Gilliam was struck in each ear with an ice pick and then strangled to death. And then they had forced Lamp, the younger girl, out of the van. Upon exiting the sliding door, Bittiger shouted some really vile stuff to her and then struck her upon the head with a sledgehammer. God. I guess Bittiger then strangled Lamp until he believed she had died, but when she opened her eyes again, he bludgeoned her repeatedly as he strangled her to death. Mm. And then both of the young women were thrown over an embankment into the chaparral. Just basically into bushes like trash. Mm -hmm. Just awful 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 um they got their final victim 16 year old shirley lynette ledford on october 31st 1979 she was standing outside of a gas station hitchhiking home from a halloween party in los angeles when they grabbed her they believe that she actually had accepted a ride home from them because she recognized bittiger because really? he was he was known to have come into the restaurant that she worked oh. at as part-time as a waitress. So she's like, he can't be bad. I, yeah. I've seen him in the restaurant, right? He's like a regular, yeah. Yeah. So they get her into the van, and they offer her marijuana, and she refuses. And then Bittaker drives the van to kind of a secluded spot, and Norris draws a knife, and they bind and gag this poor woman with construction tape. Um, and then the two trade places and drive around aimlessly for quite a while with this young woman in the back of the van. They, re- they remove the tape from her mouth and um, they slap and mock her. They beat her with their fists and they repeatedly shout at her and they alternately strike her with a hammer, beating her breasts with their fists and they torture her with pliers throughout this whole thing where they raped and sodomized her. Mm. And they also recorded this young woman and just the horrific sounds of her being tortured with the sledgehammer or the pliers can be heard on this tape recorder that had been switched on after she entered the rear of the van, just screaming in agony, which is just horrific that they would want to record something like that. When she screams at one point, they strike her on the left elbow with a sledgehammer. And she says that he's broken her elbow and says, you know, she's pleading with them, don't hit me again. And he raises the sledgehammer to hit her again. She screams no. And then he strikes her 25 consecutive times upon the elbow with a sledgehammer before asking her, what are you sniveling about? As she's screaming and crying, which is just awful. Mm -mm. Um, after about two hours of this, Norris kills her by strangling her with a wire coat hanger that he'd tightened with pliers, like that grog mm-hmm. kind of a thing. I guess she didn't react as much as they thought she would while she was being strangled, and she died with her eyes open. Mm-hmm. They then discarded her body on a random lawn because they wanted the press to react. They wanted attention. So basically, they drove to some random house in Sunland and left her body on the ivy of a front lawn. God. And she was found by a jogger the next morning. Um, The autopsy revealed that in addition to her being sexually violated, she died of strangulation and blunt force trauma to the head, face, breast, and left elbow. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by having pliers inserted inside her body. Oh, my God. And her left hand bore a puncture wound and a finger on her right hand had been slashed. So, ugh. They recorded all of that during this whole time and she's screaming and pleading. Just 
uh, 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 gross, gross, gross. Anyway, that part is done. So then November 1979, after these two had killed all these poor young women, they have this guy named Joseph Jackson, who's a friend of Norris's. This is a guy that he'd met at the California men's colony. And he starts confiding in this guy about the previous exploits of the last five months. Mm-hmm. And tells them about the graphic details of Shirley Ledford's murder. She was the only victim had been found at that time. And that's because they left right. her body out on that lawn. And he tells this Jackson guy that, hey, we killed these five young women. And there are three additional incidents where we abducted or attempted to abduct young women. Um, and one had actually been raped but released. And the rest we just let go. And Jackson, this you know former prison you know, acquaintance of Norris mm-hmm. is horrified this, by this whole thing. And he goes and talks to an attorney who tells him he needs to go to the police, mm-hmm. which, you know, you'd think that immediately you'd go to the police. You wouldn't have to ask somebody well, whether you should go to the police or like not. Well, he might be, like, concerned if he's got any liability like if he's going to be charged. Because, yeah, because yeah. he knows about it. So, like, wants to talk to an attorney first. I, that's not a terrible decision, I mean. But anyway, they, they, they went to the Los Angeles Police Department. Yeah. And these two men... Um, then gave the information to the Hermosa police, Hermosa Beach police, okay? So this detective then gets assigned to investigate Jackson's claims about these two men who supposedly had done all these horrific things. And initially they note that the confessions of Jackson matched the police reports of several teenage girls who had been reported missing over the last five months. So this is a pretty short time in which mm-hmm. they grabbed all these young yeah. women. And they kind of also kind of um, checked out a claim that Bittiger had sprayed mace in the face of a woman who'd been dragged into the van and raped by both men. And they kind of matched this up with police reports. Okay. And this young woman's name was Robert uh, Robin Robeck. And she had mace sprayed in her face after she'd been dragged into the van and raped by two Caucasian men in their mid-30s before being released. And she had reported the abduction to the police, but they couldn't identify the two men that she described. Yeah. Um, So they really weren't able to do anything. But then they were matching it up with the information received by Jackson. So then they take pictures of these two guys and go to Robin Robeck's house in Oregon. And they show her the mugshots. And she positive, excuse me, she positively identifies Norris and Bitteker as the men who raped her. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at that point, that's enough, and they they place them under surveillance first, but then they see that they're dealing marijuana, and they are, they, they're in. Mm-hmm. So they pull them in November 20th, 1979. Um, actually, November 20th, 1979 was when Norris was arrested by the Hermosa Beast Police for the parole violation. And then they get Bitteker for the rape of Robin Robeck. Okay. So... Although this poor young woman, can you imagine the kind of trauma she was probably dealing with and having to relive Mm -hmm. this and see pictures of these two creeps, she can't identify them in a police lineup. Oh, no. Which, you know, who knows? She was probably extremely fearful and stressed and and whatnot. Yeah. But the police had already seen Norris dealing marijuana, and Bitteker had drugs on him when Mm -hmm. they arrested him, so they were allowed to hold these guys on parole violations. Right. Because they're not supposed to have any of this. But they search Bittiger's apartment and find the Polaroid pictures mm. that she'd taken during all these vicious attacks on these poor, innocent young women. And they also check out Bittiger's van 
and find the sledgehammer, a plastic bag filled with lead weights, a book detailing how to locate police radio frequencies. They find Vaseline, some necklaces later confirmed to belong to two of the victims, and the tape recordings. Mm. Um, The mother of this poor young woman, Ledford, who had been named by Jackson as being one of the women that Norris confessed he and Bittaker killed, Mm -hmm. identified the voice on the tape as that of her daughter. Can you imagine? No. That's horrible. And in the meantime, the two men in the background are mocking and threatening this poor young woman as she's being tortured. And their voices are identified from the Mm -hmm. tape as well, which, good, excellent. And they also find Bittaker's motel room has, has seven bottles of various acidic materials. I guess he'd planned to use these on further victims, Ugh. further future victims, which thank God they pulled this creep yeah. in. They also discovered a bracelet that had been taken from Ledford's body as a souvenir. And they find Polaroid pictures of almost 500 young teenage girls and women that were taken kind of on Redondo beach and Hermosa beach without mm-hmm. these young girls attention. Yeah. Or excuse me, without their knowledge. Most of them had been taking, taken without their consent, just kind of random, like upskirting kind of things yeah. where they were just taking random nasty pictures of girls without them kind of knowing what was going on. But um, November 30th, 1979, Norris attends a preliminary hearing. And this is in relation to the rape of September 30th. Um, he starts to kind of show signs of stress at that point. And at the hearing, he waves his Miranda rights, and they start questioning him in relation to this Robin Robeck rape, mm-hmm. where she, they sprayed her in the face with the mace. And um, initially, Norris is denying any involvement in the murders and rapes or disappearances. Then they confront him with the evidence that investigators had pulled together and the tape recordings mm-hmm. and the pictures and all that kind of stuff. And he then starts to try to say that Bitteker is more culpable than himself like Bittiger planned all this Bittiger did all this and he's basically blaming his buddy yeah he says that he and Bittiger had been in the habit of driving around areas by the pacific coast highway and randomly approaching girls they found attractive offering them a ride posing with a pair for photographs and giving them marijuana many of those who they approached rejected whatever they tried to do to get these girls in the van but four girls accepted lifts from the pair and had been murdered with a fifth fifth victim being grabbed by force so essentially they were saying that of the five that they pulled in they lured four in and yeah. only one had been pulled well, in by and, force. They, and it's 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 like they're saying yeah well they got in the van so what did they expect yeah like basically. it's very much blaming sort of, them victim blaming yeah. essentially but according to norris who's again playing the blame game the level of brutality bideker exhibited toward their victims increased in his each successive instance that they lured a girl into the van so it got worse and worse as they the next victim and the mm-hmm. next victim the next victim happened so these two had five charges of first degree murder that were sought against both bideker and norris and the polaroid pictures located 60 Young, they located 60 young women who were in the Polaroid pictures. None of them had been harmed. So they were able to confirm right. that. Thank goodness. But police identified 19 of the women depicted in the pictures as being individuals who had been, re- who had been reported missing. And that these young teenage girls and women may have been murdered. Yeah. But they had no conclusive evidence to suggest that any of the additional 19 women had fallen victim to Bittaker or Norris. So there were mi- 19 women in the pictures that were missing and couldn't be found but they determined that there was no evidence 
that Vitaker and Norris had done anything to them, despite right. the fact that they had pictures of Other them. Other than just take pictures, yeah. Um, there's also one Polaroid picture that they found where Bitteker and Norris um, were with this unidentified young white woman. Um, very similar circumstances as the other victims, but they don't they can't prove conclusively that these two did anything to her. She's never been identified. Hmm. So I think though the police sort of realized at that point that there may be some further victims out there that they're unable to prove or identify, which mm-hmm. is really scary. And Bitteker and Norris never mentioned this young this next young woman in any of their testimonies or interviews right they go back to the san gabriel mountains to search for the bodies of the girls who had been abducted and murdered and who the confession Mm -hmm. applied to and norris brought the detectives to the area where he and bitteker had disposed of the victim's bodies but despite searches of the areas um where they said schaefer and hall had been discarded the bodies were never found so that's two victims of the two known victims right. where they couldn't find the bodies. Um, on February 9th, 1980, the skeletonized bodies of Lamp and Gilliam were found at the bottom of a canyon alongside a dry riverbed. The bodies were scattered over an area measuring hundreds of feet in diameter. An ice pick was still lodged into the skull of Gilliam. God. And the skull of Lamp bore multiple indentations, evidence of hammer blows that Nora stated he'd done to this poor young mm. woman. Um, so February 1980, both Norris and Bitteker are formally charged with the murders of these five girls. Um, Bitteker was denied bail, but Norris got bail at $10,000. Because he was the one that confessed first, maybe? Well, he's basically, yeah, blaming Bitteker for everything. Right. And at that point, they don't really have the evidence to say if one was more culpable than the other. Right. But he does get the bail and accepts a plea bargain where he agrees to testify against Bitteker in return for a prosecution not seeking the death penalty. Yeah. So... March 18th, 1980, Norris pleads guilty to four counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. This is in relation to Hall, the mm-hmm. victim by the name of Hall. Two counts of rape and one count of robbery. So you know damn well he did more than that. Oh, yeah. But that's all that they could conclusively prove or felt comfortable proving in a trial. Prior to the May 7th hearing, or excuse me, prior to the May 7th sentencing, Norris was reviewed by a probation officer who testified at his sentencing that he had again accused Bitteker of actual torture of the victims and that for Norris himself, he didn't do any of the torture. It was just the feeling of power that he was getting off on. And they said that Norris never exhibited any remorse or compassion about his brutal acts towards the victims, that he appeared compulsive in his need to inflict pain and torture upon women, quote unquote. Um, In conclusion, the probation officer testified um, that Norris can realistically be regarded, be regarded as an extreme sociopath mm-hmm. whose depraved pattern of behavior is beyond re- rehabilitation. Uh, duh. Yeah. So May 7th, 1980, Norris gets 45 years to life with eligibility for parole in 2010. Can you believe that? He got parole eligibility. Like, yeah. bonkers. And it had to have been because of that plea bargain. Exclusively right. because of that yeah. plea bargain. Plus, it was the early 1980s, and I don't think they yeah. really understood fully. They, like, didn't think 2010 was going to ever be a thing. <laughs> no. So, April 24th, 1980, Bitteker gets arraigned on 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder, et cetera, et cetera. A whole bunch of charges of criminal conspiracy and possession of firearms. He also gets charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and that's from December 1979, where he tried to persuade two inmates to murder Robin Robeck to mm. keep her from testifying in the trial that was related to that. Oh, wow. The charges for the rape of Robin Robeck got dropped later because of lack of physical evidence and then Robin's failing to identify them in the mm. lineup, which, wow. That right? sucks. 
Um, Bideker remained silent when asked how he was going to plead and refused to answer any questions. The judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. The trial started January 1981. Of course, Norris was the star witness who yeah. testifies against his former buddy, which, ugh, gross, gross, gross. So obviously the, the, the audio tapes of this stuff was pretty much insurmountable. Right. Um, more than 100 people were present in the courtroom as the tapes were played, and many members of the jury and the audience wept openly when they heard them. I don't know how. Like, I don't know how you would get through that. Um, Bideker was undisturbed. While hearing yeah. the contents of the tape and smiled through the duration of the recording. God. Like a disgusting creep that he what is. Monster. Everyone that heard that tape, I think, was impacted ex- yeah. dramatically, um, including the jury. But on February 5th, 1981, Bitteker testified on his own behalf, denying any knowledge of the abduction and murder of Schaefer, and claims he paid Hall to pose for the Polaroid photographs. Yuck. Um, and then says, you know, I paid for sex, but I didn't do anything bad. Norris did everything bad. And Norris is the one that found that spot in the Gabriel Mountains, and Norris is the one that did all the murders and whatnot. Um, He also had a similar explanation for the double murders of Lamp and Gilliam, claiming that basically he paid them for sex, and he'd last seen them alone with Norris in the van. Mm -hmm. Um, And then claims that, with regard to the tapes, that he had paid them to scream theatrically, like as an an acting kind of game, Mm -hmm. and that he left them alone with Norris, and Norris is the one that did all the bad stuff. They sought the death penalty for Bitteker, and they said this was one of the worst cases they'd ever seen. Um, February 17, 1981, after deliberating, after deliberating for about three days, the jury finds Bitteker guilty on five counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, as well as five charges of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, two charges of forcible oral copulation, one charge of sodomy, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. Bedeker was sentenced to death for the five counts of first-degree murder. He showed no emotion as they read that verdict, and they had an alternate sentence of 199 years with four months addition to that to take immediate effect, Hmm. which, okay, okay, cool. Um, He immediately appeals, um, saying that the search warrants were not valid. They they shouldn't have been able to search his van and motel room, et cetera, et cetera, but this appeal is dismissed in 1989. The, they said the procedural errors were minor. In view of the strong evidence against him, it does not affect the overall verdict. So denied. Yeah. I guess he granted a bunch of death row interviews following his conviction. Yes. In 1981, he's, which is why this comes up on the news. He's talked a lot. Yeah he's, yeah. he's a talker for sure, which does not strike me as strange. Yeah. Um, and never expressed any remorse for his crimes. No. He said he only... I'll have to go back and look up what, what where I saw that documentary, but I just watched one on them and um i believe they they each went back and forth about the ice pick thing so bitteker says that norris came up with the ice pick idea norris says that bitteker came up with the ice pick idea so it's not clear which one actually did that this guy sounds like just a royal douche though like he's never expressed any remorse the only thing he felt bad about was that they were caught and that ruined his life Mm -hmm. because they were caught Mm -hmm. um and that, you know, wow, it's one we have a lot in common now. We never knew each other before we met in this men's colony at San Luis Obispo and just like he's marveling at his own weirdness. Yeah. Um, I guess um, he liked to call himself Pliers Bitteker. Just creep. Mm. And he filed more than 40 frivolous lawsuits while he was serving his time. Of course. Some of them for stuff as minor as being served a broken cookie or crushed sandwiches. 
He said this was an example of being subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. And they declared him a vexatious litigant in 1993. And as, as a result of this, he wasn't allowed to file any lawsuits without the express permission of an attorney or a judge. Um, but he died while incarcerated on death row at San Quentin Prison in December of, ni- or of 2019 at the age of 79. His death was reported to have been of natural causes. Mm-hmm. Um, Norris was incarcerated at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility, and he also died of natural causes in February 2020 at the age of 72. After he was convicted, he repeatedly claimed that the only reason he participated in the murders was out of fear of Bitteker, which I don't think so. Yeah, they... They very much voluntarily got together and did this. Yeah, and he says, oh, I deterred other potential victims from getting into the van. I'm a good guy. No. Um, But at the same time, he admitted that he enjoyed rape and raping the victims. And that Bitteker enjoyed the acts of torture and murder. So I didn't kill. I just raped them. Like, that's any better. Right. Um, So they said that Norris, the psychologists and investigators and all that, that he derived extreme gratification from domination and abuse and torture inflicted upon the victims. And they said he had an extensive history of physical and sexual violence against women prior to meeting Bitteker. So you can't Mm -hmm. say that Bitteker was the one into all this. Right. And you can't say that, you know, you don't have any responsibility for this. Norris was initially eligible for parole in in 2009. Um, But he declined to attend the parole hearing. That meant that his... Um, parole was automatically deferred for yeah. eligibility for another 10 years. He was denied parole in 2019 and died while still incarcerated early the following year. Yeah. So super, super, super creepy. Um, the audio cassettes of Bitteker and Norris created um, by them while they were raping and torturing, especially the young woman Ledford, are in the possession of the FBI Academy. This yeah. recording is now used to train and desensitize FBI agents to the raw reality of torture and murder. God. Ugh. Just horrific. Yeah. All of it from yeah. start to finish. These two men, they both had extensive histories yeah. of violent yeah. acts towards other people. Yeah. There's no way they should have been out on the streets and allowed to do this. Mm-mm. Just It just harkens back to this time in the history of the correctional yeah. system that was just awful yeah. and terrible. I'm not saying it's much better now, but back then, you know, the lack of understanding, the lack of being able to diagnose these men properly just yeah. created some horrific, horrific um, opportunities for, yeah. excuse me, for serial killing. We under, we definitely understand the escalation aspect of it better. I don't know that we're sentencing and regulating better. You know what I mean? But like, yeah, we understand the escalation part now, as opposed well, to now we then. have a bunch of random people in there that probably shouldn't be for in just, there for stuff. That yeah. I feel like dealing is stupid. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think we've gone in the extreme in the other direction. Probably. Now, maybe. But anyway, um, but I know that this, the reason this came up into the media recently was because I believe that Norris died in 2020 and they were trying repeatedly and like with everything they had in them to help locate the bodies of these women that they have been unable to locate until now. And I believe the FBI agents that were working on this were just continuously interviewing this guy to get them to try to assist in it. And he kept giving them locations and they'd go out into the middle of the spot where he'd created these maps and there would be nothing there. Um, but then they never did locate the, the bodies of two of them, I believe it is. And then there was that additional victim that, has the Polaroid picture, right? They they don't really have any evidence of a murder happening. She's and you missing, said what? There's like they, 18 more women from Polaroids that they can't 
identify yeah, they can't, they can't link them either yeah. but they're missing as yeah. well so i think there were more victims Probably, than i'm sure five. there were well because like it doesn't sound like at any point there was any kind of agreement between norris or bitteker and the authorities to like confess to all of their crimes like it was more like norris you testify against bitteker and we're not going to give you the death penalty and like that's as far as they were going to go with it it wasn't like yeah. if we find out you have more victims like this d- this deal is like you know rendered null and void yeah yeah so um yeah i i think there were more and i think I that too. the fbi and the people that were involved in this were just trying desperately to to, to get this guy to give him more knowledge as long as they could before yeah. he passed away and yeah there's I think the people that were working on the case even today are traumatized by oh, sure. the evidence and the recordings and all the the stuff behind this case and yeah. reading the um, the reports of this person that was actually interviewing him back in 2020 mm-hmm. is just even just reading about it is yeah. traumatic. Yeah, very but much so. Interesting case, um, horrific case, mm-hmm. and I hope they they eventually the families of those missing young women get closure and they find Absolutely. something to help them wrap this case up but anyway do you have anything else to add before we wrap the case up for the day i do not all right if you have any questions comments or suggestions you can shoot us an email at the bfd podcast at gmail.com darcy what's our social media yeah we are at the bfd podcast on instagram so we will post i don't know what we're going to post for this one maybe pictures of the van the van <laughs> yeah maybe pictures of norris and bitaker yeah. and the van but yeah. I, I just these poor young women i yeah. just can't even imagine um, to have your life ended so horrifically at such a mm-hmm. young age by these idiot monsters. So anyway, um, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and never get into a silver murder van. Never. Right? Never. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.